Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi, um, F-E-M-I. I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture passage from today. The scripture for today can be found in the book of Luke. We'll be reading from chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, and this can be found on page 1583 in your pew Bible. Oh, that was behind me. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks be to God. We're still liturgical. Before uh, we get going here, I want to—I need to tell you about a staffing change that's going to be happening. There's no staff leaving or coming. We're just changing a couple of jobs here. So um, Erin, who was just up here before, is going to be—she's been in charge of hospitality and connections ministries. She's going to also be taking charge of small groups. Now, you might be thinking, Nick, that's crazy. She has a one-year-old baby. She can't be doing two jobs. And that's totally right. That's why um, Nellie, sorry, who is Lloyd's assistant, is going to be working 30 hours with, um, with Aaron so she can do, do those and have all that help. And then Lloyd's only going to need 10 because what Lloyd's going to be doing is instead of leading small groups, he's going to be focusing on the pastoral ministry of the church at large and trying to connect people better earlier on and counseling with them earlier in their problems. And so this means contacting new visitors earlier on in the process and getting to know them and ministering to them. It means getting the elders to maximize the number of visits that they can have and ministering to people, making sure that the small group leaders know how to pastor folks, because that just hasn't been getting the kind of attention it needs because we've been getting busy with the organizational kind of stuff, and that just hasn't been healthy. And so Lloyd's going to focus more on getting more people involved in pastoral ministry and doing more direct pastoral ministry himself and also, you may not know this, but like before I came here, I was a small groups pastor. Lloyd has learned a lot about small groups leading it for three or four years. And then Mike has a lot to say about everything. And so 
this way, we, all three of us on the adult pastoral staff can come around Aaron, and all four of us can be involved in supporting small group leaders who are the main pastoral ministry of our church, the main shepherds of our church. So I think that's going to be really good. I think it's, it's, I think it's really energizing Lloyd. I think it's really going to energize Aaron. She's wanted to get more of her hands on small groups for a while, and she's so good at <clears throat> hospitality and facilitating discussions well that I think it's really going to help us. So that's happening. So if Aaron starts behaving as though she's in charge of small groups, it's because she is. Okay, great. So um, when I was a small boy, which was basically until I was a junior in high school, um, I would go to my cousin's house. My mom's, um, she's the oldest of her four sisters, but her other sisters had kids earlier. And so one of my aunts had three boys. One was older, old enough not to care about us. Um, but then she had like a fit, there was a point where there, a Big Nick, I was Little Nick. Big Nick was 15. His brother, Tony, was like 13. And then Stan and I were 12 and 10. And so the wrestling match would go something like this. It was Big Nick and Little Nick against Stanford, that's my brother, and Tony. The problem was that Little Nick couldn't really take anybody. And so whoever was fighting with Little Nick basically just dominated. And then whoever was fighting with Big Nick, who was a very large strapping man, okay, he's like, e even today, he's like 240, his shoulders are as big as my head. It's a very large man. And so he would just beat the tar out of whoever— and So what would happen is we'd wrestle like that, and then I'd go— Nick, help! Right? And then Big Nick would like knee in the stomach whoever he was wrestling and then come over and tackle whoever had me, start beating on them. And I'd be like, yeah! And then I'd jump on the person he just hurt. You know, I was like, yeah! And then that person would recover and beat me up. And then I'd be like, Nick, help! And then Big Nick would come over and tackle, right? And it would just be kind of like that for hours. <laughs> and so like as a scrawny kid, I know what it's like to have faced issues that I could not physically overcome. And it didn't have to do really with me just like being tougher. It's just, you, I just couldn't bench press 240 pounds. Like there's, there's certain things in life where like God wants you to be stronger to overcome them. He wants to build into your character, make you a person of deeper substance, and actually make you stronger and weave you into a stronger community so that you can become a grown-up and handle them, okay? But there's a lot of things that are legitimately just flat out bigger than you, okay? Like if you're getting run down by a bulldozer, the answer is not God encouraging you to push harder. The answer is a larger bulldozer, okay? And, and part of the point of this passage is that Jesus needs us to understand that in terms of our actual spiritual liberation— our salvation in that sense, to be free, to be able to be our, who we're meant to be, and to be able to be who we're meant to be in Christ, and to be who we're meant to be in the world, there is a certain kind of freedom we have to experience, and that is not something we can accomplish or even keep for ourselves. That we face, all people face, a stronger adversary than ourselves, and we need to avail ourselves of the strength of someone even stronger. Right, so you might be able to summarize this passage kind of this way. That Jesus is stronger than whatever binds or dominates us. He's stronger than it. And you and I must believe that for that, any liberation that Jesus brings, he must be in residence for that, for that liberation to remain in place for us. Okay, I want, so I want to go through five things in this passage that 
are critical to understand in order for us to be free like we're meant to be and for us to be able to live with the kind of divine joy, right? We've been talking a lot about joy this year and that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And if you are utterly dominated as a person so that you are hardly even capable of standing up as yourself, you can't be joyful because you can't be what you're meant to be. There is no self in you to be yourself. And there is no ability to really stand up as a person made in God's image and to to live in a way that looks like Jesus spiritually and in terms of character. And so you're you're always crushed under something. You can't be full of the strength of the joy of the Lord. Does that make sense? So in order to walk in this thing Jesus is talking about in this passage, the first thing we have to believe is that Jesus is, is absolutely serious that there are actually demons. That that's not a It's not a relic of ancient superstition, but in order to have a full understanding of what malevolence we really face in the world, we have to believe that there really are immaterial spiritual beings that affect us. And in the case of demons, immaterial, malevolent, spiritual beings that want to hurt us, right? It says here, um, Jesus is talking about, you know, human fathers will give their children good gifts, He says, so if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then it's the beginning of our passage. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, meaning not that the demon was mute, but that the demon caused muteness in a human being. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. So notice from that passage that there's not one, but three immaterial beings referred to. Your Father in heaven— the Holy Spirit, and the demonic actor. Like, you can't have it both ways. Okay? God is not a metaphor. God is a person, an immaterial, divine, spiritual person that exists. If you believe in a divine, personal, spiritual being that exists, why why believe in only one of them? Right? There's There's no fundamental reason to believe that. We tend to believe because we have a certain kind of secular superstition that because if something was believed in superstitiously in the past, it must be merely a superstition. But that's—that's—I'll well, tell you why that's wrong in a minute. Most people—modern so people are kind of like, how should we understand this? Because there's a lot of people physically healed in the Bible, but there's n- not very much direct reference to what we would now call in these days mental illness. But there's a lot of exorcisms. And people who have exorcisms happen to them seem like they're a little not right, you know, emotionally. And so it's easy to just be like, well, that's probably how it divides up then. The the demons being cast out is probably what we would now call mental illness. And the physical—well, that still doesn't get you anywhere in terms of spiritual beings. Because if God can simply heal immovable physical illness, then he's still dramatically healing something else, right? And so there's a God who's healing. But we're still trying to make sense of that because we have categories that we know exist that aren't spiritual demons. For example, most people believe that there is something called mental illness that exists that isn't a demon, right? I'm I'm with you on that, okay? Most people believe that there are things we refer to as spirits that we don't really believe are spirits. So like you can believe in literal demons, but you might have a friend named Alice that like her parents were terrible And you might say, man, Alice is having a lot of trouble getting over her demons. But you don't literally actually mean literally demons. You mean like past experiences that have affected her that almost have a—they've almost taken on a life of their own. 
in her personality, and she's like fighting over it, right? Okay. So that's archetypal past dominant. And then some people be like, it's just sheer superstition. Like people believed in demons. That was like, they didn't even know how the, where the rain came from, right? It's just sheer superstition. And then some people be like, well, then maybe there's like actually spiritual malevolent beings that really exist. Maybe God like told us that because we needed to know. Okay. Now, I think that if you're a Christian and you take the Bible seriously, and you take Jesus seriously, and you take him at his word, how many of those four things would you believe in? I think you would believe in all four of them. In fact, I think the existence of demonic beings necessitates the existence of the other three, right? Because if, if demonic beings have the capacity to tempt and confuse human beings, they have the capacity to get human beings to think in very unhelpful ways. If they think in unhelpful ways long enough, in complicated enough ways, it's going to screw with how they think and behave dramatically. If those become ensconced over time in their personality, it's going to create major problems. And a mental illness is, by definition, that which is not psychologically normal and causes damage in a person's life. So by definition, if you believe in demons, you'd have to believe in mental illness, right? That isn't a demon. Secondly, if there are demons, what could serve the purpose of demons better than superstitions of all kinds? Superstitions about demons. Superstitions about God. Superstitions about— Jesus, superstitions about science, superstitions about human being, superstitions about everything. Like, superstitions are essentially simplistic answers to complicated questions that are like, wrong and kind of—they sort of answer it, but not really, right? And they keep you from being curious about finding better answers to questions, right? So it's, it's like the perfect demonic device for everything, right? So if there were demons, you'd have tons of superstitions. Like, they'd be advocating superstition all the time, not least about themselves, which is why I've been saying immaterial spiritual beings, because we have so many secular superstitions as modern 2018 Madisonians and Californians, welcome, that like, if I even say the word demon, your secular superstitions will be like, well, I can't believe in that. That's superstitious, right? Because people honestly believe that if something was ever believed in superstitiously, we shouldn't believe in it now because it was just a superstition. Listen, like 400 years ago, science was like alchemy, right? Like nobody's like, well, listen, because ancient scientists wanted to turn lead into gold, we can't possibly have iPhones. Like nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that because something was believed in badly, it must not exist, right? Science was believed in badly, it may be believed in better now. It's believed in more effectively now, at least technologically, right? And that's good. Like, I like antibiotics. The idea that ancient people may have believed in demons superstitiously is exactly what we would expect to happen if people believed in demons in ancient times. They believed in everything superstitiously in ancient times, but much less superstitiously than we think, and we are way more superstitious than we think we are. And so I think that actually by believing in demons as Jesus says we must, that that is A, necessary to not be dominated by them. Because listen, if you think all there is to your depression is depression, or all there is to anxiety, your anxiety is your anxiety, or all, and th therefore all there is to that is brain synapses, and therefore all the solution there could be to that is pharmacology. I think you're being radically limiting in the kind of treatments that you could seek for what is ailing you and hurting you. I believe you should seek everything that could possibly help. 
that is within moral bounds, right? Most psychologists that, listen, the people who say, who I, and you might be like, Nick, you're not being very sensitive to people with mental illness. Okay, listen, you know the people who tell me we have, we, we're like way sideways on mental illness right now as a culture? People with mental illness and people who treat people with mental illness. Those are the people in my life that most consistently tell me we are not doing a very good job with mental illness. So I'm not being mean to them. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about Jesus and mental illness and how you can come at this from a little bit more biblical perspective, because the field of psychology is almost like the field of biology. It's predominantly run by atheists and has been for years. And it's, and it's, it's, not, it's not a mean thing to say. If you don't believe in God, consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries of human existence, right? And so why wouldn't you study that if you didn't believe in God? I mean, if I was an atheist, I might be a psychologist. Like, that makes perfect sense. It's not mean, but what it means is, is that people with those assumptions have been proceeding in that profession for quite a long time, and it's affected it dramatically. And so it's been very helpful in certain ways, the things you can find out without reference to God, because they're naturally narrowed by their blindness. They found out a lot of really cool things that we can use, but we shouldn't limit ourselves to those things, right? So if you Google, can Jesus heal mental illness? There's a series of blog articles by a professor of counseling at Southern Seminary that he talks very helpfully about this. Um, and you may find that helpful. Okay, we need to move on. In order to not be dominated by these, these beings, you must believe in them. And Jesus, all through his ministry, explicitly claims to actually be— he doesn't believe demons are a metaphor. He believes you can refer to things metaphorically by saying spirits or demons. But he also believes that malevolent spiritual beings exist. And listen, you guys— you can't face malevolence you don't believe in. And you can't be prepared to face malevolence that you don't think exists. Right? I said in the last service, when my mom was right here, my parents did an incredibly great job being my parents. I'm so thankful for my parents. One of the things that they did not do very well was prepare me for the malevolence, the hatred, the, sh the actual real evil that I would face in the world. My parents were really nice people who followed rules and all their friends were nice people. And they invited us to go play with nice people. And so my world was mostly filled with nice people until as a scrawny kid I went to public school where kids play with each other and adults don't really supervise them very well. And then I started running into truly malevolent people. People who wanted to trounce upon my dignity and treat me like garbage and vampirically suck all the psychic energy out of me until I imploded as a little kid. And I didn't know what they were doing. I, I was shocked that it was even happening to me, and I didn't know what to do about it. And my parents had always told me, like, don't get into a fight and don't get in trouble. That's a, ter it's a terrible thing to tell a scrawny little boy. Right? And so— if, if you aren't, if you don't understand the full scope of the malevolence that exists that Jesus is telling you about, you cannot face it. And you cannot afford to give your most formidable spiritual enemy the additional advantages of surprise and disbelief. <laughs> if you're going to get in a fight with somebody who can beat you to death, the last thing you want to do is not pay attention and give him the first three shots. And so the first step is Jesus is like, look, they're demons. They're all, there's all kinds of malevolence in the world and in the universe, and this is one of them, and you need to believe in it, and it's not superstition. It is human superstition that disbelieves in them. The second is that humans often deny the meaning of facts in order to avoid their implications, 
And by humans, I mean that Jesus means you. Okay, the normal behavior of human beings to the Word of God, to Jesus himself, to most important things in their life that they don't want to believe in, things that they think will make them anxious or hurt their feelings, or especially tell them they have to change, or that tell them that they're wrong, is to explain them away and say that even if the thing is a dead-on fact, that it means something different than it seems to mean. So it's hard to argue with the fact that this guy was apparently mute for his whole life. Jesus says, leave him, and all of a sudden this guy can talk and everybody's amazed. It's hard to say he's not healed. So what do you got? Right? Well, maybe it was by the prince of demons that Jesus did it. Right? And so they, so they say to him, they're like, well, maybe it was by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, you're driving out demons. And then it says, and then others asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, let's start with the second one first. A sign from heaven? Okay. This guy was mute his whole life. Jesus says one word, and he can talk. And everybody's response to that was amazement. And then the next words out of your mouth are, can you give us a sign from heaven? Right? At which point they get a mouthful from Jesus, right? Hey, listen, if you read the Bible, you, one of the things you'll know is that if you ask Jesus a question, and Jesus asks you a question back, you are in trouble. Right? Because, if, because when people ask genuine questions, Jesus generally answers them. But here's the, here's the issue. When people ask interesting philosophical questions with a bad attitude, Jesus does not answer them. And when people ask for something that they want with a bad attitude, usually Jesus does not give them what they want. Because what Jesus believes is our main issue as human beings is not philosophical. It's not that we don't know facts or things that we need to so that we can believe. The whole assumption of the Bible is that the primary human problem is psychological and moral. We won't believe. The fact of the truth of the gospel can stare us in the face and we will say it's of the devil. You understand? That's, that's how the human heart works. And so Jesus is like, uh-uh. No, 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 no. No, 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 But you see, that's— that's what normally happens. And so when you look at this passage, one of the things you have to realize is that you are those people. We are those people who are looking at Jesus and saying, you did that. That's something else. That's not what that is. I mean, I mean, you're like, well, I would never do that. Oh, really? You would never do that? Really? You would never do that? Are you a Christian and then do you do whatever you want sexually? Because it's the same thing. <laughs> you look at the Bible and you're like, that must mean something else. I really love him or her, right? Or, or you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to get a divorce. Do you see the thing there? It couldn't possibly mean that. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. What? I, I, wait, you shouldn't talk about that person that way. Well, the person really hurt my feelings. Well, the Bible says you can't talk about people that way. Well, but it's, you know, like, you won't, maybe won't say it's okay for me, but that's, that's what our behavior demonstrates. Every time we sin, we're saying, yeah, but it couldn't possibly mean that. And listen, this is really interesting because in, in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, it includes where Jesus says, listen, you need to be really careful because if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. You'll be damned, is what he says. Now think about that. I mean, think about how evangelical Christians usually behave. We usually talk as though if there's a sin that you can do that damns you, 
it's got to be something you do with your genitals, right? Like that's, that's the way we behave. Like we're like, oh, that's got to, it's got to be the worst sin. No, Jesus says that there's one sin that is unforgivable, that is in itself damnable, and it's a, it's a speech act. Think about that. I mean, Jesus says in another place, listen, the crack whores and the gangsters are getting into heaven ahead of you. He says to good religious people who are just talking. They're just talking. They're not just talking. Speech is one of the most fundamental human acts, and it declares what we believe is true and false, beautiful and ugly, meaningful and not. It is everything. That's why muteness and healing muteness is so fundamental to Jesus breaking the domination of Satan. Those who cannot speak as a human being, God demonstrates his greatness by speaking creation into existence, by speaking the truth to people. Jesus is himself the word of God. And you've got a human who bears God's image, who can't speak. It's demonic. And so he releases speech. Right? Sometimes we we act so we have no idea what words are. Just read a Twitter account. It's crazy. And Jesus is like, listen, if you say, if you say my act of divine liberation is damning slavery, and if you say what you darn well know is the truth isn't true, you don't come back from that. And what that also means is this. Jesus understands the difference between somebody who doubts and somebody who is always going to say they want one more proof. And those are not the same thing. And it can sound exactly the same. You have two people who say, yeah, man, like I have this doubt and I can't believe in Jesus yet. And because I like, like I have this thing. And there are some times where Jesus goes, okay, okay. I will do something extraordinary to meet you where you're at. Like Thomas, for example. Thomas should have never needed Jesus to like show up and put his hands in his side and see his pierced hands. He should have believed Mary. Mary's perfectly trustworthy. Like God picked her to raise the Son of God, right? Like she probably told the truth most of the time, right? And she's like, Jesus is alive. He's like, I don't know. Right? And then Peter and John and like all these guys are like, no, no, totally. Jesus is definitely alive. He's like, I don't— I just think, I think I need more. Like, that's a pretty bad attitude. And Jesus shows up and is like, okay, look, here we are. Look look at the things. I'm alive. And then Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. Okay? Now, he had a bad attitude, but he was willing to believe. And Jesus met him. But there are a lot of people, a lot of people who, who we, you, we think, you think you'll believe if you have enough information, but you won't. Listen, everybody's threshold is different. We all—some of us need more proof than others. Some of us are more analytical. Some of us have more doubts. Some of us have had more pain. And so some of the questions that we ask are harder to psychologically unroot from our feelings. And so, listen, there's some people—listen, I've talked to some people, and I'm like, you should believe in Jesus. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, God loves you. They're like, that's great. I was like, would you like to believe in Jesus right now? They're like, yes. And you're like, okay, well, let's pray. They're like, okay. And then there's other people that just like, I've got these questions, and I don't know about the thing, and— and I love talking with both of those people. I actually enjoy the second one more because I'm, per- I'm that person. And it's easy for me to be like, yeah, I know. Those are the questions, right? But there's, there's some of us who think we're that second person who really just have questions, but we're not. We're, it's never enough. We can see somebody healed from muteness right in front of us, and we'd still be like, hey, let's get a sign from heaven here. 
or, or Jesus does something, and we have another explanation for it, right? Like, I, I see this with prayer all the time. It's, it's like people behave as though you can never say God has done something in response to prayer out of his love for you unless you've exhausted every single other possible explanation that any human could ever come up with philosophically and hypothetically in the entire history of the world, ever. And then if there's literally no other conceivable possibility in heaven and earth by any technologies, then maybe you could insinuate that God might have had something to do with it. Instead of being like, I prayed for that and then it just happened. I think it was God. And so we need to—you have to recognize, if you're not going to be dominated by lies, you have to know that we're liars about the truth. You've got to know that about yourself, or you will be—you will always be so self-deceived. God will do something, we'll be like, no, it couldn't be. How, how possibly could, can God communicate with a person who he can do it right in front of your face and you go, that means something else? And, I, and I, I listen, I've, I not only see it all the time in people, I've seen it in myself where I've read even passages of the Bible and I'm like, oh, that means this. And then 10 years later, I'll read the same passage again and I'll realize it meant something totally different and I was completely unwilling to see it because of where I was at that time and because I didn't want to see it. And because I never suspected that my own inclinations and my own assumptions and my own self-protection would keep me from seeing it, right? Let's keep moving. All right, the third thing is, is that everyone is under the dominion of the devil unless freed by Jesus. So before I said, hey, we should see ourselves in the people who say, I want to see a sign or it's by Beelzebub that you do this, right? Um, and we should see ourselves in those people. But you know who you should also see yourself in? The man himself. Luke, or John says in John's gospel, he says, listen, if I was to write down the story of every miracle that Jesus did, I don't know that all, all the world could contain all the books that would have to be written. Okay, that's a very interesting statement. Because there's only about, I don't know, 30 or 40 miracles of Jesus we hear about. But apparently there were like hundreds, maybe thousands of them. So, so why these? And the answer is very clear. The gospel writers record mainly the miracles when Jesus tells us those miracles mean something and we need to understand the spiritual meaning. That's why they concluded. There's very few miracles in the gospels. I can't think of any right now where it just says Jesus is walking by a woman and just healed her. And that's it. Like, and then it just goes on into another story. And then Jesus was having a hoagie. Like, it's not, that's not how it goes. Like, every time there's a miracle, there's like something happening. Somebody's expressing faith or doubt or there's two different views and Jesus is deciding between them and showing by this action. There's always something happening. And so when Jesus heals this mute guy, it's not just he's like, oh, it's a shame that person can't talk. It's never that. The reason why Luke is telling us about this event is because we are supposed to see something, and we are supposed to see that this domination, this demonic domination that he's talking about, is the normal state of every human being. This guy's is more pronounced, it's more obvious, but that's why he's the illustration. You use an example things that are obvious. He's so obviously dominated, and we feel like, well, what do you mean? What do, what do you mean? But what Jesus is trying to say is, he's like, listen, no. 
to the extent to which we don't belong to Jesus and Jesus isn't present and running the house of our life, we are under the domination of devils. That is the human condition, right? And so he says it this way because he he says it kind of nicely and a little bit obliquely, but he's still making a very, very direct point. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now that's, that last sentence is particularly aggressive, right? If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you're a scatterer. We're enemies, or we're friends, right? There's only two sides. Now think about that. One chapter earlier, I mean like one page in the Bible, Jesus' disciples meet some guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name and isn't one of their group. And they're like, we tried to stop him, Jesus. Jesus is like, don't stop him. Anybody who's not against you is for you. <laughs> what happened to Big Tent Jesus? Right? There's a very, very specific answer to this. It's the same reason why denying the work of God in his liberation of human beings from demonic oppression is the unforgivable sin. It's because this is literally the very spear point of his work. It is the absolute center. Listen, you can—he's like, you can say stuff bad about Jesus, about me. Like in Matthew and Mark, he's like, anything you say bad about me will be forgiven. You can say, I'm a charlatan. You can say all kinds of terrible things about me. Because that's not the point. The point is, I am liberating humanity from demonic oppression, sinful domination. I am saving, liberating, forgiving, building up, making eternal, flowering into the image of God. That's what I'm doing. And listen, man, if you stand in front of that spear, you're going to get skewed. You can be over here talking trash about me. You can say a bunch of things. But man, you get in front of the spear point of exactly what I'm doing, and that is unforgivable. See, that's the point. It's much more focused. A lot of times when we read this passage, you might say, oh, the strong man. Wait, what this is about is like, I'm in charge of my life, and I'm in charge of the house of my life, and I need to be strong because if not, somebody stronger is going to come along, and they're going to attack me, like, and so I need to be ready to resist the devil. That's not what it means. The first strong man is the devil. And he's already at home in your life, or my life. If Jesus is not already the main resident in your life, then there is a strongman resident, and that strongman resident is a demonic influence. And he's already there, and he is armored, and that is his house. And you are a slave in it, even though you are the rightful owner. It's yours. It's a gift of God. Your life, your life and your being is a gift of God, and you don't own the place. Not practically. In terms of being, you own it, but you don't really own it. Because that strong man owns it, and the only—and you try to get him out. You can't get him out. The only way to get him out is if a stronger man attacks, defeats, and disarms him. Pulls off his armor, throws it away, kicks him out the door, and gives you back your house. That's the only way liberation can come, is what he's saying. And so that's where, in the very next sentence, Jesus then speaks as a conqueror, right? He's now the general of the great conquest in existence. And he says, I am the conqueror, and I am making this war, and therefore whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. I am—you see the language of the divides up the spoils and 
defeats this man and disarms him. It's all war language. The spoils are what he's going to take back of your life. He's going to come and he's going to defeat the evil one. He's going to take back all the things already that were supposed to be in your house that are all yours. He's going to give them back to you. Right? And then he's like, in this conquest, you can't be against me. You have to be with me. This is my main work. Right? Now, and so you've got to believe that's you. You are the mute man. He's this dramatized example, but Jesus isn't talking about just people who are mute or who have mental illness or who are demonized in a kind of literal possession kind of way. He is talking about the work of evil among all of us and how it affects us and how we must be liberated. He's saying there's only one way to be liberated. The only way to deal with this bulldozer is a bigger bulldozer. And so you, you might be like, well, where do you get that in the Bible, Nick? Well, it's a, I get it from Ephesians 2. It says, as for you, that's speaking to Christians, it's talking to people who believe in Jesus. As for you, you were dead into your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What do you think all that flowery language about that spirit is referring to? It's referring to the devil. It's referring to demons. And how they affect, how they affect our sinful nature in wanting to be our own gods, how they affect the culture we create together by trying to be our own gods, worldliness, and he's a spirit of the air, meaning he sort of, he's above this, he's working all of this, and he's at work in all who are disobedient. Meaning, if, if you, if you don't belong to Jesus and you are disobedient to Jesus, there is a spirit working in you, and it is his. That's the, that's the claim. That's why when we come to Jesus, we are not just forgiven of our sins and justified. We are also liberated from the dominion and the power of the devil. Like, if you go back and read Martin Luther from like 1925, or 1925, 1525 on, there's all this focus on the devil, and like we get really uncomfortable with that, but he was really connected to that. You know why he was connected with it? He struggled with mental illness his whole life. He knew what it was like to feel externally dominated by another and, and fighting back from the inside out with the power of Christ. And that metaphor of dominion over the devil was incredibly important to him as he made that war in his life. Okay, moving on. The fourth is, Jesus is saying that deliverance isn't of itself permanent. Okay, this, I, I have little stars. I put little stars on that. Because that is the one that is very specific to this version, Luke's version of this, as opposed to Matthew and Mark's, though they talked about it a little bit. Because we would normally think that if Jesus the strong man comes in and liberates us, we're liberated, man. Not really. What Jesus is saying is he's saying the liberations of God, when God acts in a person's life and makes something possible, that thing is not in and of itself permanent. This is one of the greatest tragedies I've ever experienced as a pastor, ever in my life. I've seen lots of people moved by the gospel and by the truth of Christ, and they come and they accept Jesus, and they become Christians, and they say, I believe in Jesus. I want the Holy Spirit working in my life. I want to follow Christ. I know this is what I'm made for. And four weeks later, they don't ever want to come to church again. And that happens pretty predictably. That's why in the parable of the sword, Jesus actually had a cat. The seed would go in, it would sprout roots, right? 
and then it just dies. It withers and dies. And he had a whole category for that because it happens constantly because that's what happens to people. They think that because, you know, today maybe you might be like, I'm going to believe in Jesus. That's great. Listen, that doesn't mean you're going to believe in Jesus tomorrow. Doesn't mean, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that. In fact, I, I know a number of people, for example, in the, in the time I've been at High Point Church, I've had to do church discipline with people who have walked entirely away from the faith, who had been completely physically healed of profound physical suffering. I'm not going to go into that because it's actually too recent for me to say much about, because I don't want people to be able to know, but I had a good friend in seminary, David, who um, was pastoring a church in Arkansas, and one of their parishioners was, was a woman who was dying of breast cancer. It was horrible, as it always is. And, um, and somebody prayed for her, and she was miraculously healed. Like, they, like she had, they'd ceased treatment. Nothing could be done for her. And they, um, somebody prayed for her. And people had been praying for her for a while. But somebody prayed for her, and she just got healed. And she, like, got her weight back, and, like, she was looking good. And so she, she took some money, and she went out and got some augmentations and left her husband. Listen, that is not rare at all. Because human beings were so— we're, if you're a sensory-focused person, we are if we don't have spiritual substance. We're going to be sensory-focused people. We're so focused on our pain and not wanting to feel our pain anymore. And so the minute something happens and releases that pain— we think, oh, I'm free, and now I just want to enjoy it and dance around in the joy of the sprinkle of it. And the, the problem is, is like, you're not changed. Like, there's new attacks. There's more malevolence. Like, you've got you've to harness the thing. You've got to live in it. You've got to—there's—it's not in and of itself permanent. You have to make it permanent. If you've accepted Jesus, there, you still got to make that permanent. If you've been healed, great. You can destroy your life with the healing that you've received from God. You might have a breakthrough in like some hang-up you have personally, and like you feel like God revealed something. Uh, let me give you a, a quick personal example here, so you, you know kind of what I'm talking about. I have an extraordinarily obsessive personality. You would never know this, right? But I will like get focused on something. I mean like— and just be like, I just want to know more. I want to go deeper. I want to know everything there is to know about it. I want to know how it really works. I have this diagnostic obsession. I have to know how it works, right? And so I want to like study and study and study. And study. Right, okay. I'm getting obsessed with telling you about that. So like there are times when like I'll get obsessed with something and it'll start hurting my family and hurting my wife's life and like it's just not helpful. And like God will do something, sometimes through the intervention of my wife, sometimes not. And I'll realize that like this is happening. And I'll have a moment of, like, repentant faith. And I'll be like, this is not helping. This is not what God wants me to do with my time. And I'll let—I'll be like, okay, that's it, right? Okay. That lasts for about 16 minutes. About 16 minutes. And then it's gonna—that desire to get back involved in that thing is gonna come right back. And if I don't—if I don't take further steps to trust God and make that permanent, I'm right back. That's true of almost all of our character flaws, almost all of our hang-ups, almost all of our metaphorical demons. They just—you get a little free of them, and they come right back. Right? They're, it's not in and of itself permanent. And, and the way Jesus tells it is it gets much worse. Right? He says the demon is sent out, and it doesn't really like where it has to be, and it, it wants a home. 
right, to torment. And then it goes back. It says, I wonder how Bill is doing. And so it goes back to see the place where it had gone from, the person had left, and finds everything nice and in order, which is perfectly inhabitable. Especially, I mean, like, have you ever seen this? Like, you clean your house, and your kid wakes up from a nap, and they're like, oh, you set it up for me to destroy again. Right? It's like that. And it's like, oh, it's all ready for me to destroy. That's great. Thank you so much. But then it doesn't say he goes back in and, you know, like, terrorizes the person. It says he goes and finds seven of his crazier buddies who are more hateful and more malevolent and more wicked. And he comes in and they all party in his life and just destroy everything seven times worse. Right? So it's not just, you'll go back to where you were. Remember the guy Jesus heals who was— he was, a, he was crippled for like 30, 30 years or 40, I can't remember. It was a long time. He's laying by the pool of Bethsaida, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he goes, I don't see how that's possible. I can't get— He's like, he's like, just get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks, and Jesus bumps into him like, it seems like a co- some hours later, maybe a couple days later. And he sees the guy, and he like, he's like, hey, stop sinning, or something worse is going to happen to you. Right? Like he had, he's like, oh, my legs work. Let me run over to the whorehouse. You're kind of like, what? It's not, he doesn't say, stop sinning or you'll end up back where you were. He, he literally says, it'll be worse. Because you see, anytime redemption comes into your life and then you waste all that grace, it makes you harder. It makes you more callous. It makes you more cynical. It like, it does stuff to you. And it's, and it, it must do that to you. And so it's harder. It's harder. Right? Okay, last thing. Okay, you ready for some hope? Okay, so here's the good news. So Jesus tells off this nice woman, right? So only faith in the real Jesus can make his protection permanent. Okay? Jesus is not a fumigator who comes in and sprays your house and leaves. In order for you to be free of the domination of the strong man, the stronger man has to reside. Right? I mean, think about this militarily. This is why it's so hard to, like, take over another country and, like, change it over a long period of time. You gotta keep people everywhere. Right? Like, that's one of the reasons why the Byzantine Empire had such a hard time with the Muslim conquests. Because they had all these garrison cities everywhere. There's all these people in all these garrison cities. And the Muslim armies could just, like, take everybody and attack one place. And so the Byzantines could have, like, ten times more people. It didn't matter. You got, you could just take 7,000 people, attack one garrison city with, with like 2,000 people in it, and you had great shot at it. Because attacking's always easier. Defending means you have to have a, a strong enough force that no matter how many come to attack, you can repel them at least until help arrives. And that's impossible militarily. It's extraordinarily difficult. And you see, what you need is, you, your house has to become a fortress. The house of who you are. And, and you need a stronger man than the strong man residing in it constantly. And it's the only way to remain free. Right? So this place where Jesus says these things. This is a woman called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather is, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now listen, she paid him a really nice compliment. Right? You compliment somebody's mama— on the basis of their behavior, you're complimenting them too, right? It's like if I do—if I give like a good talk and somebody's like, God bless your mother, 
right? That either means I'm an idiot, right? Like, and it's like, God bless her heart, you know, like she has to put up with you. Or it means she must be great because you're great, right? And it means the latter, obviously, here, right? Because, because it's based in parental sacrifice. What's more of a sacrifice than to bear somebody out of your uterus and then nurse them, right? I refer to that as extruding a child the other day in a staff meeting, and people found that strange. Right? And that's parental sacrifice. And that parental sacrifice allows the child to become who they're meant to be. And like Jesus has clearly become somebody great. And she goes, your mom, bless your mom. And like that's true. Like literally in Luke's gospel, Mary says, everybody's going to say, I'm blessed for generations. And that's totally true. And yet Jesus says that this sweet woman who just complimented him has completely missed the point. And he's actually, he's using a word that she said for his own device, right? Because she said, blessed is the woman, right? Because a parent is blessed most when their child is consistently praiseworthy, right? He's 30-something, right? He's like an adult, and he's like, this is his character. And his mother is blessed because he's grown up into honorable manhood, like at least in her eyes, right? And she's like, this is a, this is a good man. Like, and as long as he lives, his mother will be blessed by that this is a good man, right? Your mother is so blessed, right? And Jesus is like, okay, you're right about the concept of blessing, right? Blessing is not what secular bigotry says it is. It's like uh, the excuse of a religious person to say that all of their success is from God and therefore they have no responsibility to the poor or hurting people, right? People like to think that's what Christians mean when they say blessed. What blessed means is a consistent, a consistent state of flourishing in the presence of righteousness that God blesses. That's what it means, which can only exist in the presence of generosity and care of others and love, right? But the idea is that it's consistent. And so Jesus is saying, okay, that's a very important idea. If what you want is a consistent life of blessedness, of hope and joy and flourishing in the presence of reliability, if what you want is blessing, if all these people want blessing, blessing is at your fingertips, okay? But blessing requires that the stronger man take up residence. You have to have faith daily, consistently, fully. You've got to—and and the, the, the shortest way to say that is simply, you need to hear the Word of God. Not give alternative explanations and asks for signs from heaven when God is telling you something. When you read the Word of God, you listen, you hear it, and then you do it. So, Michael Beresford and— um, Vincent Peary are always getting after me about my sermons about giving more, like, focused, clear, practical applications in my sermons, okay? And I always think I'm insulting your intelligence when I do it, but let me, let's just do four very quickly, okay? One, to be permanently and consistently free, Jesus has to take a permanent and consistent residence in you, in your conscious faith in your real life. There has to be real faith. And, and you have to invite Jesus not just to help you with something, not just to take your problems away or fix your marriage or whatever. Whatever pain you just want to be free of right now, that you can be free of and feel happy and then forget about him immediately. You need the strong man to reside, and you need to invite him in permanently and unconditionally and walk with him consistently. One of the main ways you need to do that, literally, is you need to do what it says in the passage right before. You need to ask the Father in heaven to give you his Holy Spirit. 
in the most literal sense, the Holy Spirit is the strong man that lives within you. Right? That's why Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to go away, but the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to be with you, and he's going to be in you. The idea of the strong man coming into the house is similar to that. It is that of the indwelling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the strong man who walks with you. The real, personal presence of God who is with you. And you need to ask God for the Holy Spirit. And you need to ask God for you to grow in your capacity to listen to the Holy Spirit. And to be consistent in walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And you need to believe that the Holy Spirit is really there. And interacting uh, with you mainly on the, in the region of your conscience. Not—okay, very quick on this. The Holy Spirit, for the most part, I, I believe, empowers your conscience to believe right moral and spiritual thoughts, rather than speaks through mainly intrusive thoughts. Okay? A lot of Christians believe that what the Holy Spirit does is he gives you lots of intrusive thoughts. So if, like, you're walking down the street and you just have, like, this intrusive thought that, like, you should buy 70 gallons of milk and take them to apartment 476. Like, and, like, if you don't do that, you're not obeying the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the main way the Holy Spirit reveals himself. There's no place in the Bible that says that's what he does. What it, what it does say is that it convicts—he convicts us. And the, the root of our conviction is what we call our, our will, our consciousness, and our, and our conscience. So the Holy Spirit will do is say, you know that's wrong. You know this is right. You know this is the good you should do. You know I value that person. Rather than the intrusive thought of like, I should marry that person I saw across the room and talk to for one minute. Do you understand? Do you, do you get what this is? That's a demonic superstition. The demonic superstition that he has taught millions of evangelicals and charismatics is that if you believe in Jesus and you believe the Holy Spirit walks with you, when you have intrusive thoughts, you must do them or you don't obey God. And so therefore, if, if they're stupid and you don't do them, then, you're, then all kinds of guilt can be created. Like, it will produce mental illness. I promise, if you think that way, it will produce mental illness. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit never gives an intrusive thought, but that is not how the Bible talks about his work. Mainly, unless you have the gift of prophecy, which we can't talk about right now. And then the third thing is, listen to the Word of God. Quit thinking you're God and that you get to decide what He's really saying. You don't. I know many of the things He says are hard. They're hard for me too, man. And yet when you walk in them, you find their wisdom. If you walk with an open mind, if you walk in them assuming that He's right and you're wrong, if you don't ask, keep asking for signs and saying, well, God, why are you doing this? If you really ask inquisitively, why are you doing this? I've, I've counseled people before who, who were like, coming to my office, and they're like, God, why are you doing this? Why am I hurting? Why, 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 why? And I was like, okay, listen. You need to take off your lawyer yelling jacket mentally and put on your scientific lab coat and ask the same question. Same question. God, why is this happening? Knowing that there's a good answer, that you, that like, God is doing something, and you just don't know what it is. Rather than the accusatory, there can't be an answer, cross-examining why. Because God doesn't answer the yelling cross-examining why, because he doesn't give you what you want when you ask with a bad attitude. But when you say, God, I don't understand this. Why is this happening? Or what do you want me to take from it? And then you invite the Holy Spirit to be present and teach you. And then you listen to the word of God and obey it. 
very commonly you begin to see things you didn't see before and pieces of an answer start coming together because the, God's whys are probably a lot more complicated than you think. It's not because you were bad, mainly, right? And so if you do those four things, the result of that is what you're really doing is you're inviting the strong man Jesus to really reside in you, to stay. And only when he stays is he strong in you. And only then can you be under his protection rather than under the devil's dominion. You're, the house of who you are will be occupied by a strong man, so to speak. You, you are and will always be occupied by a strong man. You are not strong enough to overpower either of them, but you can choose which one resides in you. So as we sing this last song, and as we try to reflect our way out of this, um, make that choice again today. Consider how it needs to become permanent. And by what means you might be neglecting for it to become permanent. Or how you might be like these religious teachers that nothing's ever enough. Because one of the empowerments—listen, this is very important. One of the liberations of Jesus, where he clears the house, but it's he doesn't necessarily stay unless invited, is the ability to believe. The Bible says that naturally we just don't want anything to do with God. And so if, if you at any moment have the ability to believe, the Bible says that is not an ability that will last. Th th that comes and goes. And if it happens, it's because God is making it happen. And if you have the ability to believe, you should believe whatever it is God has given you the ability to believe. Because if you don't, if you don't speak when God gives you speech, like the mute man, you'll become like the religious teachers and you'll explain it away. The minute you walk out that door, you'll say, that sense of conviction I had, that was just, that was a game of rhetoric Nick was playing. It had nothing to do with God's conviction in me. And you'll, you'll attribute your capacity to believe at this moment to something else. And that's a blasphemy. So don't. It, as we sing the song, as we, as we pray, Whatever God gives you the capacity to believe, you believe right now. Or it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be given the capacity to be free by God and not embrace it. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us to embrace you. We don't want to be people who come to you every time we're overrun by malevolence and by the influences of sin and worldliness and devils and to say, oh, will you free me again or something like that. God, we want to be people who you clean it out and we say, oh, would you please stay? And when you say to us, listen, if I stay, it's going to be a certain way, that we would say to you, oh, that's how I want it to be. I want it to be your way. I know that you're not just a great conqueror, that you're a great king. And I've been under, I've been under the dominion and the domination of evil things so long. I want you to reside here, Holy Spirit. Reside in me. Help me to listen to your word and help me to obey it. And I pray, God, that you would give people joy and that the joy of the Lord would be their strength, like it says in Nehemiah. Pray that you minister to people over the next few minutes as we sing. In Jesus' name.